0: This phrase, one another, um, really shows up so many times in the New Testament. And it's really just one Greek word, alelone, which really means like this constant one another, this facing of each other. So as we go into this series, today we're talking about loving one another. But we'll be talking around humility towards each other, bearing each other's burdens. We'll be talking about speaking the truth to each other. Um, But like I said, today we're starting with that love that really small, small topic of love. So let's pray. God, we do thank you and praise you for who you are. God, I don't even understand how you could or how much you do love us. And yet you did. And that Jesus, while we were yet sinning and had our backs to you, you died for us. So Father, I pray that we would see clearly maybe even for the first time in a new way and receive the love you have so that we in turn can love others well. In your precious name, amen. There's this idea, this word called schema, and you may be very familiar with it, but schema is something that uh, you've experienced before that kind of becomes your reference point. For example, if you eat some unusual food or something unique to you, and you're trying to describe what it tastes like to somebody else, the common phrase that we use is, yeah, it kind of tastes like chicken. So chicken is our common schema or a, a kind of fruit, Now, when I say the word love, no doubt there is a schema you have for what love is, what love should be. As a parent, I see many define love in a certain way about their kids. Like a loving parent will do everything to protect them. And you're like, that's, yeah. Until you have one of those kids that that's not enough. And you're like, no, a loving parent just lets them get whatever they deserve, right? There's like this moving target of love. And it is not lost on me at all that when we say God's love, there are those to you that that makes sense in a certain way. And those of you like, I don't get that at all. In fact, we often make it look a lot like what we think, meaning... Jesus' love for other people looks a lot like your love for other people. Like, this is what Jesus would do. If Jesus was here on earth today, he would love exactly like this. And if someone was to watch your life, they're like, oh, that's the same worldview you have. Because we often use him for our own validation. What is God's love? Often our schema says love is deeply connected to safety and security. When we feel good, when we feel safe, when we feel happy, that's love. But there's another kind of love that is actually willing to run towards danger because there's life on the other side. I have one daughter, she's 19 years old. And when she was about three years old, we were at the ocean playing in the, in the white water. Just that real shallow stuff that comes up and back. And like every good father should do, he starts leading his daughter to the deeper waters because that's what good dads do. Even when mom's on the shore saying, uh, too far, and my common response is, nothing happening here, it's okay. So we're out a little bit deeper because it's okay because her dad is right behind her. And I'm completely aware of all that's going on. So we're having fun. And if you've been in the water like that, you know that the current goes past you and then it starts going out the other way. Well, I had spent some time in the ocean in my life and suddenly I looked up and I saw one of those waves that was much larger than every previous wave combined. (laughs) And when there's a larger wave, suddenly the current that's behind you is not allowing you to escape, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, you're trying to go and the water's being sucked out. At that moment, my daughter was like, I'm with my dad, all is well. I picked her up and I I knew the only thing we could do was to run at that wave and dive under it because there's life on the other side and there was no life (laughs) where we were standing. Needless to say, my daughter was convinced I was the worst father of all time. I picked her up and we are running towards that cresting wave and she is kicking and screaming and pinching the back of my neck. And if you know her, you would say, yeah, that makes sense. She's like, dad, You are awful as I'm running towards this wave. Dad, why are you doing this to me? And I think the words, Dad, I am not enjoying this. It didn't come out like that. I think it was, Dad, I hate you, or whatever it was. (laughs) And I just knew, like, there's life on this other side. So we're running towards this thing, and she is crying and kicking. And I'm like, hold your breath. We (laughs) dove under the wave, and we come out the other side. And I'm thinking, I'm the most victorious dad of all time. Once again, my wife is like, what are you doing? And I'm like, nothing happening here. And I would, you'd think my daughter would have been way more appreciative. Like, don't you see what we just accomplished together? And she's still kicking me. You're the worst. Why did we do that? We went back on shore for a while. We got where it was really like just a little bit of water. And I started to explain to her where the waves were crashing and why we did that. Because, you know, you just take those moments as a dad and you're just like, he's going to be so appreciative. It took years for that (laughs) to happen. But as you know, there are times the most loving thing that can happen is you get picked up. And what seems so counterintuitive is that you start running at that wave because there's life on the other side. And some of you might be here this morning and we're talking about the love of God. And there's times God's most loving thing he does for you is like, I'm picking you up. And it is not going to feel good. But the most loving thing I can do for you is run you out the other side. Because through scripture from the writer of Ecclesiastes to the most vulnerable transparency of Paul, what we could see is this confusing narrative at times that the unrighteous thrive and the righteous seem to struggle. That's our human schema. So when we are told to love one another, our experiences can shape it in so many ways. But are they the right thing? And what are we actually being commanded to do? There's some scripture that's really, really clear that John writes, quoting Jesus, talking about this love. The first one is in John thirteen thirty four through thirty five. Jesus says, "A new command I give you, to love one another." As huge word, two letters, amazing implications. As I have loved you, how does that one sit? Love one another. It wasn't like this. Love one another. You know, give each other meal, time, as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If, another huge implication word, only two letters, if you love one another. The mark that Jesus implied to them that the world will know you are different, that there is something different inside of you, is as and if. If we love one another, that's how the world will know that I am real. John 15, 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. 1 John 4, 7, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. 1 John 4.11, dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. When we have a unity with God, we then can actually have clarity with each other. We get this out of order. We so desperately try to make things right here out of our reputation and forget about our character. The world strives to be seen a certain way, yet internally they are broken. That's why people can hold it together in one environment and go home most likely and absolutely fall apart. Because they lean on a reputation of being loving when in fact their inward life is so distraught it comes out somewhere. And what's a tragedy in our world is that in public spaces even in ministry pastors hold it together in public to keep their jobs yet fall apart at home where it really matters. Things to know about this love. One, we are commanded to love people with God's love, agape. Secondly though, it is possible. An actual help is provided. It's not one of those deals where you're like, you need to love each other, good luck. Figure that out. And Jesus is like, hey, Holy Spirit, did you you hear what I just told him? Let's watch him struggle in this one. But he's like, I'm actually going to help you. But this is what I mean and how important it is that it's connected to something much deeper than our will or our ability. It's connected to our heart. In order to have a true sensitivity of others and be authentic in our compassion, it needs to come from a peaceful heart. Because only this peace of heart truly liberates us from ourselves. It increases our sensitivity to others and renders us available to our fellow man. Only he who possesses an interior peace can really help his neighbor." How can I communicate this peace to others if I myself don't even have it? How can there be love and peace in families and societies between individuals if there's no peace in people's heart first? When we don't have this peace in our heart, all we're communicating to other people is restlessness, distress, and works, and tiredness, and brokenness, and burnt out. All of those things are real deals. But if we don't pay attention to what's going on on the inside to begin with, the ability to actually follow through with the command that God gave us is impossible. We need to be filled with God in order before we can connect with others. Let me make this super simple. Have you ever been snorkeling? You have a mask and you have this apparatus that's in your mouth and goes up, right? The idea there is that you're floating along the water. The air tube is outside the water so you can actually breathe the air and be at peace with what you're watching. I lived in Maui for five years, and if you never go in the ocean and look at what's going on in the ocean, you're missing half, not more, what Maui has to offer. So snorkeling, people pay big money for this, like this tube coming out, and they're at peace. They're seeing fish and coral. Tragedy hits when all of a sudden the wave comes and the, the, the tube fills full of water and you swallow that lovely salt water, which can be great if you're gargling if you have a cold, but when you're looking at the puffer fish, it's awful. <laughs> so you learn how to blow out that water. One of the most frustrating things I've experienced is that I had a little leak in my air tube. And every time I breathed in, it was salt water. So, I took the tube out and I tried to just snorkel without it. So, all you end up doing is holding your breath for as long as you can and you look around and then you breathe back up and then you go down. There's just this constant like up and back and distorted and back and forth. But when that tube is just in the air and you're just breathing, your interaction with everything that's under the water is peaceful. You're watching fish, you're seeing them hide. You're looking at coral. You're pointing at it with your friend. There's this different level of peacefulness. But when there's not that clear connection to the air, it turns into absolute panic. When there's no air, it's just quick, and it's fractured. But when this is right, all of a sudden, that peace with each other is a whole different deal. And at the core, it's not that we disagree with this. Like, yeah, I get that. I understand. But we just don't know how to make it ongoing or sustainable. Like, I have moments of peace. That's why I come to church, Dale. Did you you sing those 30 minutes of music? I'm at peace. But then we go out in our world and our life, and it's like, it all comes pouring back in. Our love for one another has to start from the heart, because that's a place that we actually respond And not just react. You see, those difference between responding and reacting is huge. Because a reaction is like you bouncing a tennis ball off of the ground. It reacts. It bounces back up. But a response is like bouncing the ball in a mattress where it absorbs. And it takes it in. Are you responding or reacting? In 1 John Um, 4.18, John gives us this other idea around what love does. He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. This idea of casting out, because I think we'd be like, I'm all in with that. Like if there's something that can take this anxiety, this hurt out of my heart, I'll take it. It's really one value over another value. Pastor Dave is about to experience this. He has a dog. He never thought he would love this dog. But his dog has his own Instagram account. Dave loves his dog. Dave's about to have a baby. Him and his wife very soon. If not right now, I don't know. If that dog still gets to run that house with a baby in it, something is seriously wrong with Pastor Dave. (laughs) There's an exchange of value. I remember when we brought my daughter home from the hospital, we had two dogs, two big dogs, a big old black lab and a big old shepherd mutt coyote wolf or something. (laughs) They were in our house all the time, but the day our baby came home and she was a bit jaundiced, so the doctor's like, put her by the window to get some sun. This was like the 90s. It was all good, right? It wasn't some magic sunlight pill. You just were like, here's a something, good luck. I remember we brought our daughter home, and I'm sitting there, and I'm looking at my wife. I'm like, now what do we do? She's like, you care for her. And I'm like, I don't Yeah, I'll wait till she's 12. (laughs) I shouldn't have said 12. I should have said, like, 21 because it's, okay. So because we had to put sunlight on, we had her by the window, and my two big dogs were on the other side of the window just looking at her and then looking up at me, and I swear they went, Looked at her. Because there's a change of value. That which is greater gets the inside. If we really think about it. I remember when I was a pastor in Maui, we'd have food at our elder meetings and it was great. So often, but the guy who would buy the food would go like to Foodland, which is like a Safeway. And he'd buy, the, oh, you know Foodland? Yeah. <laughs> Nothing like overpriced food. Right on. Here we go. Six pack of Pepsi, $12.95. Woo, killing it. So, I don't know why I said that. So, he would buy food and bring it to our meetings. He'd have like, you know, sushi and this and that. And it was like, ah, it's bought at the store, but it's Hawaii's store, so it's okay. One of our elders, though, was the head manager of a restaurant called Mama's. If you've ever been to Maui and you've ever been to Mama's, it's ranked one of the top restaurants in the world. There's times he would bring leftover sashimi to the meetings. Let me tell you. I stopped eating Foodland Sushi when Kevin brought the sashimi from Mama's because the value was like, that's junk. This is sent from heaven above. (laughs) How foolish it would be to be like, there is premium grade sashimi. I'll just choose 7-Eleven. It's exchange of value. So when we say fear drives out love, the question is, What are we valuing? Because that's what the exchange is. It's not even close. So when we receive the love of God, it drives out the former patterns of thinking and it changes it to the Jesus way. It's being available in the moment. Because that was one of the greatest marks of Jesus' love. Fear is the emotion of someone who's expecting punishment. You might be here this morning thinking, God is about to punish me. But in reality, what God might be doing is, no, we're running towards that wave. It may not feel good, but there's life on the other side. So one of the things we need to start with is to develop a heart so that something of value can be planted there. Ken Geyer writes this in his book, The Reflective Life. The reflective life is a way of living that prepares the heart so that something more of eternal significance can be planted there. He's implying that our current pace and our current duties and our to-do lists, and if we're just hoping God does something great in the midst of it, he can, but he's probably waiting for a spot to dig in. We do this very thing by paying attention to what's being planted in our heart every day, all week long. I have found this to be so significant in my life that not a week goes by where I'm not assessing what happened in my life. And on the good weeks, not a day goes by. And I ask myself these questions at the end of my week. Thursdays at 5 o'clock, I call it my finish line because we get Fridays and Saturdays off. So Thursday at 5 o'clock, every single week, I ask myself these questions and I write them out in response because they show me what's been planted. And it gives me a chance to say, keep that in there. Oh, I need to get that out. Questions like, who's encouraged me? What did they say? Who have I encouraged? What did I say? What did I do well this week? What did I not do well this week? What gave me life this week? What sucked the life out of me this week? (laughs) And the key question I ask myself every week, if people saw what I did in private, would they trust me more or trust me less? When these things start piling up week after week after week, you can start to get a feel for like, what's being planted in here? What's finding its root? Thomas Merton said it this way. Every moment and every event of every person's life plants something on their soul. Just as the wind carries thousands of invisible and visible winged seeds, so the stream of time brings with it germs of spiritual vitality that come to rest imperceptibly in the minds and wills of people. Most of those unnumbered seeds perish and are lost, because we are not prepared to receive them. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, the preparation prior to something being planted in your heart is so undervalued. We're looking for our next experience. We're looking for our next hit of spirituality. We're looking for our next thing. Versus just paying attention to our heart that when something of significant comes, it actually can take root. Dallas Wood, in a live interview, simplified this whole thing about paying attention to your heart like this. He says, ask yourself these questions. Am I growing more or less irritated these days? (laughs) Am I growing more more easily or less easily discouraged these days? And even those simple questions, or maybe if you don't know how to answer it, ask someone who knows you well, your spouse, a friend. Am I growing more discouraged? Yes. <laughs> Am I irritable? Yes. Am I irritating you? Yes. Uh, uh, okay. But there's these simple questions that at least helps us pay attention. Some wives are like jabbing their husbands I now. I love it. They're like, listen to the pastor. Sorry, guys. Next week is like humbling for each other or something. But when we even ask ourselves, we start to pay attention, like there's a movement inside of my heart that needs attention. If one of the things that's in you that's wrestling though, it may have been planted by God. That sometimes unsettledness is from God and you're not going to be at peace until you actually are pursuing that which God has for you. So often we pray like, God, take this away from me. God, make this better. God, my, my, I'm, I'm in trouble. And I think sometimes we're asking God to cut short what he wants to do in us. So it's simply paying attention and asking God, where am I at with this? One of the stories that means so much and resonates so much to me, but how Jesus actually sees this is at the end of his ministry in John, we know that Peter was such a close soul with, with Jesus. And we know this story early on most likely that Jesus goes out into the boat with him and's like, hey, cast the net on the other side. And there's all these excuses like, it's the middle of the day, it's hot, we've been fishing all night, you don't know what you're doing. But when Jesus goes fishing, he just draws fish to him because that's what Jesus does. So he threw the net on the other side All the fish come like it's party time in the boat. They have no idea they're all about to die, besides the point. So they're in the net and they throw them in and Peter's like, who are you? And he's like, I'm about to make you a fisher of men. No idea what that really means. I'm wondering if Peter's like, you're like psycho, Jesus. Like that's what we're going to do with men? But really what Jesus was telling them is that we're going to be domain changers. Just as the domain of these fish went from life to death, your domain changing with men will be from death to life. So that's what we're going after. And that happens within. At the very end of Jesus' ministry, he dies, he raises again, he finds himself on a beach. The disciples are out fishing again because they're like, what else do we do? Our leader is dead. Let's go fish. Great practical use of their mind there. They're out fishing. They're coming in. And Jesus throws out a familiar phrase to them and says, hey, throw the nets on the other side. The best part is that they do it. It's like, oh, okay. But then Peter's like, wait, it's the Lord jumps into the water with his clothes on. Actually, he took his robe off to fish, put the robe back on to jump into the water. Once again, makes no sense at all. He's running to shore because he knows it's the Messiah. Jesus is sitting down with him. This is probably the first interaction he's had with Peter after Peter denied him three times. The night when Jesus has died, they looked at Peter. Different people saw him and like, weren't you with him? And he's like, I never knew that man. Another time, weren't you one of his followers? No, even a little girl came up to him. You were one of them. He's like, I was not. The fact that he denied three times and Jesus is like, Let's have a conversation on the beach. Fear would tell us, Peter's about to get it. Peter's about to get a whooping. But the kind of love that drives out fear is exactly what Jesus was about to do. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. It is not lost on me how many times Jesus looked at Peter and said, do you love me? Now, the Greek would tell us that one time Jesus said, do you agape me? Do you love me like God loves you? Next time he said the brotherly love, and the next time he said this intimate love. But his three times to Peter, and why was Peter getting so frustrated? I believe it's because Peter knew what Jesus was doing. Peter denied him three times, and three times Jesus looked at him and was removing the denials one at a time. I know you declared that I wasn't part of you, but do you love me? Yes. I know that you looked at that little girl even when she said, you're one of them, and you said, no, do you love me? Yes. I know that when you you felt like your life was threatened and that fear came in, do you love me? Yes. And it is only when we love him are we able to tend the sheep that he sends us. He says, I'm about to send you sheep that need you. Do you love me? And when we do, we can love them. The summary of Jesus' words was this Hey, Peter, you failed. Guess what? You're in charge. (laughs) And you're like, that's not loving. And yet, sometimes he picks us up and he runs right at the wave because there's life on the other side. The peace within us is a direct connection to our ability to love one another. Let me make it simple once again what that means. We are called not out of ability of will or skill to love each other, but an ability to simply reflect God to other people. My cousin um, has been a fisherman in Alaska, king crab, salmon, you know that show, Dangerous Catch? Think that, that's my cousin, without all the drinking and drunkenness and screaming. But he still does that, he's a captain of a boat. A lot of downtime on his hands, so he started to take photographer to take pictures as well. And some of the pictures that he captured are just astounding. So there's a picture, and we should show it up there for us, of, of a bird and a sky. And darkness. (laughs) There we go. It's it's an image he caught. There's been a lot of pictures of birds, but I'm guessing you say wow because he also caught the reflection of that bird on the water. There's another one of of a mountain. Lots of pictures of mountains, but the reflection of the mountain onto the water shows peace. Are we with me? Is there another one? Are we stuck? We're stuck. All right. So there's this mountain (laughs) on the peaceful water. Close your eyes with me if you will. Have you been in a mountain lake when it's at peace and the mountains reflecting on it? Killed it right there. But there's a third picture that he took and I wish you could see it because it'll just drive this point home. And yeah. This one is amazing as well. It's birds and a whale and a shark and absolute anarchy, and it has its own image. That's a heart that's not at peace. (laughs) There is absolutely no ability for anything to reflect off of that. Without a shadow of a doubt, these kinds of times happen in our lives, do they not? And it's not like God's going, there's something wrong with you. You should be at peace. But there's times it's just chaos. And when we're like this, it is extremely hard to do this. So much of what we're asked to do is let God just reflect off a peaceful heart. Because when we are at peace, it actually initiates the ability to be obedient and truly love the lambs that God sends our way. So as you look back at John 13, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love me. How did Jesus love How does Jesus love you this morning? He loves you selflessly. His love was for the benefit of other people. Who benefits because we gathered together today? It should be each other, but there's a whole world out there that should benefit as well. Jesus loves sacrificially. You see, love doesn't always bring us emotional happiness. Sometimes it brings us the cross. Sometimes it brings us the fear. But when we love each other sacrificially, love casts out that fear. He loves us understandingly. People will reference love as like blind, like oh true love is blind. You don't see all the bad things in your partner. That's not love. That's fantasy. You know what love is? Eyes wide open. I see every demented thing about you and I love you. That's why I'm so excited I've been married almost 30 years. Because my wife is like, I see you and I still love you. And I'm like. And then she goes, go and sin no more. (laughs) Jesus sees you exactly who you are, where you are, how you are. And he loves you. Jesus loves forgivingly. At times, his disciples were blind, and sensitive, slow to learn, lacking understanding. At times, they were cowards. But Jesus didn't hold it against them. Instead, he forgave them, and he filled them. That's all possible, my friends. This weight, this command, is not something that will pound us underground, but it's something that's meant to be experienced and enjoyed. But I know that for many of us, the struggle is, I just can't sustain it. How do I get that? I hear what you're saying, Pastor, I want to be at peace in my heart, but the fear rushes in so much. I would say it's because you're tossed and turned and you don't have an anchoring point. What does that mean? I share this because it might be helpful for somebody here who might go, That's nice for those little struggles in life you face, but something worse has happened to me and I can't shake it. I don't pretend what's happened to me can equate to what's happened to you, but this is what I learned. There was a moment in my life where I received a phone call from a doctor that it was devastating. That the words that he told me and the insensitivity I believe that he had towards me was immense. In fact, I was checking out my food at a Costco when he decided to call me to tell me the prognosis. Foolishly in my head, I'm like, doesn't he know I'm at Costco? Of course not. I'm the one who answered the phone. But at Costco, I got the news from a doctor. And in that moment, and in months to follow, the emotion of fear absolutely replaced the assurance of being loved. I had no ability to relate to other people, to my wife, to my daughter, to my church. The only option I had was to pretend. And so I did for months. My family took the brunt of that for a while and then my church would take the brunt of it through like highly um, convicting sermons where I just was yelling at them and they're like, something's wrong with our pastor. (laughs) It was impossible to do this because I was ticked at him. I felt like he had turned his back on me because the wave was coming and it was on its way and I didn't like what he was doing. But I discovered over some periods of time and implemented some things slowly that reversed the filling of the fear and the evidence of love returned. The first one is this, I realized that nothing about my current situation changes the truth My faith is based on actual events of a man who died, rose from the dead, and provided a clear path to God, period. What I was experiencing, either that was true or wasn't true, I believed it to be true because of so many historical things that didn't change. I still didn't feel great, but that didn't change. The second thing I started to realize over a period of time is the control that I thought I had I never really had. And striving for it is like chasing the wind. If you feel a loss of control, that life isn't working out like you thought you did, I don't mean this as a remark to make you feel demoralized, but the control you think you have, you never had, and it's just fake. Solomon kept saying it's like vapor, it's like chasing the wind, when reality is you have a God who's with you. The third piece that I realized is I started to actually listen to people who have gone through real pain. It wasn't about me, it was about them and I wanted to hear it. This is community and hear their discoveries and to learn from them. And the fourth thing, in my desire to understand, I realized that God had picked me up and was running right at the largest wave and I was screaming, but there was life on the other side. And I thanked God for what he was doing, but even though I did not understand. Those four tangible things got me from a place of fear to his love returning because it gave me perspective. The biggest difference in my life from the time I was a young man to a time I'm not as young as I used to be (laughs) is perspective. And perspective is nothing you can fast track. You can't take shortcuts. You can't make it go quicker than you want. You have what you have. So you lean on him who has the ultimate perspective and you pursue that with others to help you along the way. I'm at a point in my life nine years later that I can tell you, I don't wanna be who I used to be before the doctor told me I had multiple sclerosis. I just don't want to be that person anymore. And people are like, I'll pray for you. I'm like, awesome. And without a shadow of a doubt, God has told me, I have freed you from the need to be healed. You're learning what it's like to receive my love and trust in me for the first time. And I'm telling you, my friends, there is nothing better than seeing God come through for you every day. And that only happens when you let the fear be moved out and the love be transported in. Love is casted out fear, which creates a space that I could actually love another. Brothers and sisters, that's what we're called to do.